Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Christian Fellowship. Our vision is to extend and establish the influence of the kingdom of God by equipping the saints for the work of ministry. We hope that you will be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. The Bible has a lot to say about God's goodness, amen? It says that He is good and that His mercy endures forever. It also says something very interesting about His goodness, and that it leads us to something. And what is that? It is God's goodness. It is the goodness of God that leads us or guides us into this thing called repentance. How many of you were not in the service last week? All right. You'll still go to heaven. It's okay. <laughs> Pastor Andreas ministered a prophetic word last week. If you were not in the service, I encourage you uh, very strongly to, to go and make an effort to either get that on the podcast, on SoundCloud. It's on Facebook. There's a video. We've actually videoed last week, uh, and the video has now been posted to Facebook. So if you are really keen to hear what God said again, or you're really vain and you want to see yourself on Facebook... Go and check it out. Whatever your motivation, you'll be blessed. And uh, the message is there. Basically, I want to just sum up very briefly what Pastor Andreas shared, and then I want to jump into starting to break that down and how do we begin to digest and how do we begin to cooperate and work with the word that God is giving to us at this time. Last week's word was a prophetic word ministered to and for the church within the city of Cape Town specifically. Pastor Andreas, on Tuesday morning last week, I'm not exactly sure what the date was, but he had a dream, and I'll do my best to recall the dream for you. In the dream, he saw himself in a, in a large gathering of believers. It was a Christian gathering. It was believers of various different denominations in, the, in, in, in attendance. Some, and as he looked around, there were different forms of worship going on. Some people were dipping their hands, their fingers in, in I suppose you'd say, holy water. Others were anointing one another with oil. There were different prayers and supplications and requests that were being made to God. There was worship going on. And as, you, as I articulate this to you, it sounds like a good gathering, a Christian gathering. Nothing that was going on there was bad per se. But the heart of God was grieved concerning what he saw. And as Pastor Andreas turned his heart to the Lord and said, Why is your heart grieved here? And God's response was, if it doesn't matter how many people you have when you get together. It doesn't matter how good your music is or how many prayers you pray or what format or ritual or procedure you perform or you work through. If it doesn't come from a broken and a contrite heart, it is meaningless. God was looking for something more in that gathering than what He could find. He was finding a lot of religious activity, a lot of people going through the motions, doing what they believed sincerely was good things unto the Lord. But the heart attitude that was behind those good things was not what God was looking for. Then Pastor Andreas looked up onto the stage and he saw the worship team. And leading the worship was a young lady with the guitar who was wearing a mini, mini skirt. And as she was dancing and moving up and down with the praise and worship music, she was flashing her underwear for all to see. And in a sense, there was a grieving in his heart because of the lack of reverence for the presence of God, a lack of reverence for the things of God. And so we see in the atmosphere, and that was the dream, we see 
in the atmosphere, the extrapolation or the interpretation or the understanding of that dream, though it's quite self-explanatory, is that God is speaking to His church. And He's saying it doesn't matter if it's a Sunday morning. It doesn't matter if it's the whole church of Cape Town gathering together in Mitchell's Plain. It doesn't matter what your gathering is. By the way, it's not aimed at that event. I want you to understand that. It's aimed at the heart attitude of the church. And it's aimed, I think we need to be even more specific as I minister this message to my family. It is concerning our heart attitude when we come to the Lord. To do our religious things, whether that's praying in the morning, whether that's coming to church, whether that's singing our song, whether that's going about our day. The activity wasn't bad. The heart attitude within the activity is where the problem lies. The primary emphasis was that the hearts of the people were far from the heart of God. They had not caught nor understood how he felt about their state nor about the condition of the city. God's heart was grieved because while the people of God were going on about their merry business, going on about their acts of worship, we're living in a city where crime is rampant, rapes every single day, murders every single day. And the heart of the church wasn't broken over these things. The heart of the church was indifferent. It didn't really matter. It wasn't bothered by the plight of the poor, of the destitute. But we were carrying on our merry way, and that was okay. And God's heart was grieved, and He was saying, this is not okay. You have completely missed the heart of the matter. There's a few scriptures that Pastor Andreas read last week, one of which was Psalm 51, the, prayer of, the, the psalm of repentance. When David was confronted with his own sin, this is the product. This was his prayer, his psalm of repentance. And as I was working through that again this week, verse 6 really stood out to me. It says this in Psalm 51, verse 6. It says, Behold, you, that is God, desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part, You will make me to know wisdom. You see, it's not about the outward works. God's desire is for His truth to be established in our hearts, in our inward parts, in who we are. Not our truth that is subject to our circumstances or our way of thinking, but the truth, His truth, the truth that is love, the truth that is moved with compassion. The truth that laid itself down to sacrifice his own life for you and for me in our destitute state. God is desiring the truth of who he is. The pers- who is the way and the truth and the life? Jesus. Jesus, the way of Jesus, the thinking of Jesus, the nature of Jesus. You see, anything less than God's truth within our hearts is simply deception or perversion. It's not the real truth. It's the truth as we perceive it. Now, I know we live in an age where everything is relative and each one has his own truth. Folks, if everybody has their own truth, then there is nothing that is truth. What I am saying is there is a truth. And so often our definition or our understanding of truth falls far short of what the truth really is. We only understand a part, but there is a whole. We see things from a perspective, but it's not the whole perspective. It's not the big picture. Do you understand what I'm saying? God is wanting to, to, us to capture His heart, the way He feels, first and foremost, about us, but then also about our circumstances, about our city, about the state of things. He wants His undefiled truth to be the reservoir that we draw from. Not the media, 
not our culture, not our upbringing or our way of understanding, but the truth of who He is and of His Word. Paul, writing to the Galatian church, prays this prayer over them in chapter 4, verse 19. He says, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again, until Christ is formed in you. Paul's persistent prayer was that Christ, the nature, the person of Jesus Christ, would be formed. What does formed mean? That they, their hearts would be molded like you would mold clay to the image, the ways of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? As I started thinking about that, I realized a few things. Christ was not self-absorbed. He wasn't focused on Himself. Christ came to earth for our sake to serve, not to be served. Go read Philippians chapter 2. I'll read it for you. Philippians 2 verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was in Jesus Christ. This is basically what Paul is praying here. Let Christ be formed in you. So let the same way of thinking be in you. Verse 6 of Philippians chapter 2. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself. Say, made himself. Of no reputation. Jesus was not made of no reputation. God did not make a sweeping authoritative decision and send his son Jesus to earth to be said. No, no, no. Jesus himself made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a Messiah. No, he took on the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. So he humbled himself to God to come down as man, and then he humbled himself as man to man and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The Bible says, therefore, God has highly exalted him. But Paul encourages us to let this mind be in you. Jesus never asked, what's in it for me? Isn't that the world's way of thinking? What's in it for me? Well, how am I going to benefit from this? You want me to do this? What's in it for How do I benefit? What about the cost to me? What about me? Jesus never asked those questions. We need to change the way we think and perhaps our approach to some situations and some of the things that God's been speaking to us. He laid down His life to serve us, not in our cleanness, not in our new righteousness. He laid down His life to serve us and to bless us in our, depra in our depravity, in our poverty, in our sinfulness, in our ugliness, in our dirtiness. That's where Jesus came. He humbled Himself. He came and He supernaturally met our needs. Deliverance, healing, life, eternal life, the Zoe, the God kind of life He came to give us. He paid our ransom and delivered us from the captivity of sin. Jesus did all of these things. So when Paul is saying, I want you to have the mind of Christ, my prayer for you, little children, is that Christ be formed in you. Is that that same heart attitude that is willing to lay itself down again and again without any consideration for self or the cost to self so as to serve with the love and the charity, the benevolence, the compassion, the mercy of God. In a nutshell, Jesus was more concerned with catching the heart of his Father and our well-being than he was with his own comfort, with his own pleasure, or with his own well-being. 
Jesus took pleasure in the Father's pleasure. That's it. Think about that for a moment. Jesus took pleasure in the Father's pleasure. Jesus' greatest joy was not sitting on the banks of Galilee having a fish, or on the Sea of Galilee having a fish braai. That wasn't his greatest joy. I'm sure he enjoyed that. But his greatest joy was the will of his Father. It brought him to earth. It led him to the cross. He laid down his life and served because his greatest joy was to please his Father. Let this mind be formed in you and me. That our greatest joy, our greatest sense of accomplishment or significance would be simply in knowing that we spend our lives day by day bringing joy to the heart of the Father by being His love to the world around us. His primary concern was never Himself. We have this urban theology of me time. We never see Jesus saying, guys, I'm going to separate myself now because I need some me time. I've got to take care of me first because if I don't take care of me, I can't take care of you. That's how we think today, isn't it? You've got to take care of yourself first so that you have something. Jesus never said that. Jesus said one thing, I'm about my father's business. Yes, he did rest, and that's important. I don't knock it. Yes, he did draw away from the multitudes, but why? To wait on the father. And in waiting on the father, he was refreshed, he was strengthened, he was invigorated afresh so that he could go out and give again. It was never selfish. You see, the problem with me time is it's focused on me. Amen. Jesus, even in his me time, wasn't focused on me. He was focused on the Father. Does this change? am Am I striking some nerves here? Well, I hope so, because I believe that God is wanting to strike some nerves here and saying, guys, listen, it's not about you. When you come to church, it's not about you being blessed. You will be blessed, but it's not about you. It's about me. Do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together. Be there. Be there. Why? So that you can give, so that you can be a blessing, so that you can bring your offering of worship with and to and for the body of Christ unto the Lord to give Him praise and glory. It's not about you. It's not about me. Bring your tithe. Bring your offering. It's not about you. It's about Him. Love the lost. Seek to save. It's not about you. It's about Him. It's all about Jesus. And if in any way we have stopped that from being the primary pursuit, we've missed the point. We've gone on with religious stuff and we're doing things which in our hearts are meant well. They come from a good place, but we've missed the point. It's unacceptable to God because at the very deep core heart of it, we've made it about us and not about Him. I've come so I can be blessed. And I can be touched. I've come because I have a need. What about the need that is on the heart of the God the Father? What is it that's on God's heart today? This is the heart that Paul prayed would be formed in the Galatians. This is the heart that Paul himself embraced. I mean, Paul wasn't preaching something he wasn't living, was he? Paul was really qualified to preach a message like that. I stand up here preaching this message. I'm preaching to myself as much as to you. It's a difficult place to be. Because I have to grow in this as well. God's talking to me as much as He is to any one of us. And the truth is, folks, there's only one way for, the, for, for Christ to be formed in us. And that is through the cross. 
until I die to my own desires, my own pleasure, my own will, I cannot embrace the will and the desires of God my Father and of Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit. Derek Prince said this, Without exception, throughout the entire New Testament, repentance is the first response to the gospel that God demands. Nothing else can come before it. Nothing else can take its place. It's interesting, as I pondered on this, you'll never see in Scripture that Jesus, any one of His disciples, any of the apostles, or any of those they trained or raised, asked or pleaded with people to repent. Never did, was there a request or a pleading or a begging. Yet today, this is the method we use to lure, lure people to Christ. We promise blessing. We promise hope and healing and eternal life and comfort and mercy and grace. And we try to entice people to lay hold of it, the eternal without ever explaining to them that in order to do so, they need to let go of something else, their own temporal lives. There was a real understanding that repentance was a calling out of something and into something new. God is calling us to repentance. That means not just a little, oh, I must think a little bit differently, although that's what the root of the word means, and we'll get to that. But we need to understand that when God is calling us to repentance, it's not a please would you repent. It's not for His sake. It's for our sake. This is When God calls us to repentance and He highlights our sin and He starts putting His finger on it, why is that? Because God's mean and He's judgmental? No, it's because His mercy is calling out to us to deal with these things and let them go because they are robbing us from the eternal life that He came to give us. It is God's mercy and His goodness that calls us up into repentance. And He says that if you want to, to enter a fuller life in Jesus Christ, those things you've been praying for, you're going to have to let go of that. You are going to have to deal with that. That attitude, that mindset, that lust, that affection in your heart for someone or something, and I'm telling you to let it go, you can't move on with me until you do. And you need to change the way you think about that. Pastor Andreas, I'll never forget it. One time he preached, he said, it's not enough to love God. I thought, what do you mean it's not enough to love God? He said, it's not enough to just love God. You have to hate your sin as well. Because if your heart hasn't turned towards from your sin in hatred, it's never fully turned to Jesus. This morning we sang, I will follow. I will follow Jesus wherever he goes. Folks, you cannot follow Jesus while you're reading your own map. There's a time that God is speaking about for us to take our maps and crumple them up and throw them in the waste paper basket and say, right, spirit, where to? Or Holy Spirit, who to? And to follow Him wherever He goes. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 9. I'll read to you from the Amplified Bible, starting at verse 23. And He was saying to them, I like that. It's not He said to them. Think about this. It's not He said to them. He was saying to them. There is a conversation going on here that we come into. And I believe this conversation was not just during that time period. There was a continual thing. Yes, it was during that time period, but there was a continual thrust to Jesus' ministry. He was saying to them, If anyone wishes to follow me as my disciple, he must deny himself. That is called repentance. We cannot follow Jesus with self-interest in heart. It is impossible. The mark of a disciple is first and foremost that he has denied himself. Then it says, take up his cross daily 
expressing a willingness to endure whatever may come. Everybody in that time knew what a cross meant. Suffering, pain, and death. Torment. Whoever wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself, be willing to face whatever that means, and bear whatever cost that means, whether it be a personal cost that you have to, of what you have to give or a cost that is afflicted upon you because of persecution. Take up his cross daily and follow me, believing in me, conforming to my example in living, and if need be, suffering or perhaps dying because of faith in me. For whoever wishes to save his life in this world will eventually lose it through death. But whoever loses his life in this world for my sake, he is the one who will save it from the consequences of sin and separation from God. That is what mercy looks like, folks. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, wealth, fame, success, whatever it is that we strive after, and loses and forfeits himself? You see, the resurrection life that Jesus came to give us comes only through death. We can only experience the resurrection life of Christ to the measure that we have died to self. And here's the incredible thing. When you bury a seed in the ground, it's not dead. It looks like it. It's dead and buried. But that very act of laying it down and forgetting about it is the very act that unlocks within it the potential to become what it was created to be in the first place. It is as we lay our lives down and allow God to break open that shell and allow His Word to penetrate and His Spirit to come in and work and move within us that He brings us out to a place of what is He calls eternal life, Zoe, and brings us to the fullness of the potential that He created you and I for. We cannot achieve that in our own strength. It is a divine act of God. Amen? Roy Hessian, in his book, The Calvary Road, said this, Dying to self is not a thing we do once for all. There may be an initial dying when God first shows these things, but ever after it will be a consistent dying, for only so can the Lord Jesus be revealed constantly through us. You see, the only life that pleased God and that can be victorious is His life. I want to say that again. The only life that pleases God and can be victorious is His life. Never our life, no matter how hard we try. But inasmuch as our self-centered life is the exact opposite of this, we can never be filled with His life unless we are prepared for God to bring our life constantly to death. The Apostle Paul said, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but, but, our problem, folks, is we're still alive and kicking. Amen? Our problem is we're still alive and kicking. There should be a lot of souls that sunk down into that little plug well that little, at the bottom there, because that's our baptistry. And every time we've baptized somebody there, it's been symbolic of what? Their death. And resurrection in newness of life in Jesus Christ. Amen? As I was driving to church this morning, the Lord reminded me of something. And I want to digress for a moment and go there. If you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, 
chapter 6. We see an encounter here of what true repentance looks like and what brought it on. Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to start reading from verse 1. It says this, that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried out to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Let's pause. We see here an incredible scene. Isaiah sees the Lord sitting. And there are seraphim, and every time they get a glimpse of God, they shout out again, holy. There is none like him. He is set apart. He is in a league of his own. That's what it means, holy. 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 And they are shouting it so loud. There's an incredible scene. The posts are shaking. I'd also be trembling. My posts would be going like this too. And in the midst of this, we see Isaiah saying, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What happened when Isaiah got a glimpse of God? He had a revelation of his sinfulness. You see, in the presence of light, darkness is revealed. What's in the darkness is revealed. And Isaiah comes and he sees the Lord and his first response, listen to this, his first response is not, wow, you are awesome. You are, no, he was completely undone. He could not bring sufficient, adequate, acceptable praise because he knew that it was not coming from a place of honesty and sincerity. His first response in the presence of the glory of God was, woe is me, I am undone. I have a revelation. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. The first thing that happened as he encountered the presence of God was repentance. How often do we come into the presence of God with our platitudes, and our hearts are just oblivious to what's really going on inside? And he carries on. He says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me as a result of his confession, as a result of his revelation and his penitence before the Lord. A seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. Let's stop there. This is one of the most incredible encounters in Scripture for me. Because we see a man who comes in as he is, but he leaves changed within a moment. Not just changed, 
but commissioned. Many of us come to Jesus so we can have our sins washed away. Come to Jesus. Let His grace come upon you. Let His mercy be and His goodness. Hallelujah. Because why? Of course, it's all about me, right? No. In this moment, Isaiah sees his state. He turns his heart to God. God sends a seraphim with a call. He cleanses him, takes away all his iniquity. And what is the very next thing that happens? He hears the voice of God. Once his junk was taken care of, he was able to clearly hear the voice of God. And in that space, that question altered the course of his destiny. Who will go? I will go. Man, you are God. You're asking a question, anything you want. You just, I'm your man. Anything you need, I'm your man. Anywhere you want me to go, God, I'm your man. Anything you want me to give, God, I'm your man. Because it's all about you. It's not about me. How often do we pray prayers like that in all sincerity? I was running last week, week before last. I have an analogy that I bring very often when I talk about why we do services the way we do. Why do we have praise and worship first and then we have the ministry of the word? And there's a reason for it. It's, it's a scriptural reason. We come into his gates with thanksgiving and praise. We come in, we acknowledge who he is. We see him just like as I did. We acknowledge you are God and we are not. You are Lord and I am not. I am here to serve you. And from there, in that place of acknowledging everything that God has done and who he is, we come to the place of kneeling before him. And what we do there is we worship, amen? And we open our hearts to him. And we say, God, you speak. And we are listening and we open our hearts. And that's the attitude with which we come to the ministry of the word. You know what God said to me? He said, why have you been stopping short? He said, you come and you give me praise. And I love your praise. You come and you declare all the wonderful things that I do for you. And, in a, and you leave encouraged and you leave blessed because that's just what happens when you come into my presence. My goodness. But why have you stopped there? What about that kneeling down part? What about that really opening your heart part? Those parts you know that I know about, but that you're just not ready to deal with. What about those parts? And this is the message that God is giving to His church at this time. Psalm 51 again, verse 16. You do not desire sacrifice, or I would give it, David said. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. The word contrite here means repentant. And repentance means a complete change. The actual root of the word repentance is the same root for the word it's, I think it's meta, met, metanoin or something like that in the Greek, but it comes to the same root as the word metamorphosis. Now, you understand what a metamorphosis is? It's where a worm goes through an experience, an encounter, and comes out something completely different, unrecognizable from what it was before. 
That is what the power of God does. That is what the life of Jesus came to do. And here is my prayer, folks. My prayer is that God would give us the gift of repentance. What I'm not against is preaching a message like this and then, con- and, and then having some kind of contrived altar moment where now we must do this and God is called. If, we're going we're gonna to have some time as we worship God after the service. And if the Lord is speaking to you, come. Come to the altar. Come and deal with your junk. Come and deal with your stuff. Come and lay down your life, whether it's the first time or the hundredth time. Do it afresh. Do it with all your heart unto the Lord. Amen? But my prayer, because I often I realize that repentance very often for me, sometimes it's a moment, sometimes it's a season. And I believe we're coming into a season where God is dealing with hard attitudes within His church, within the city. And you know what, folks? We're a part of this city. I'm not responsible for the whole city, though I'm called to it. But I am responsible for my heart, for my, nat- for my natural family, and for my spiritual family. And here's the truth, folks. So are you. Repentance is a gift from God because without the encounter, without a revelation of Him, genuine repentance is not possible. We cannot of our own volition repent. And so I want to ask you to join me in this. Praying a prayer of faith that God would give us the gift of deep, genuine, sincere repentance. I had a meeting with somebody this week who said something that I I thought was very funny. True. And you'll understand it even more if you were at Pastor Andreas' message last Sunday. He said, you know, God's been leading me for some time now to just start the day on my knees. Literally on my knees, just acknowledging that He is God. It just does something for my soul in terms of, you know, my own humility and dealing with my own pride. It, it works in me. And I, so God's been dealing with me. So every morning, whether it's three minutes or ten minutes, I just start the more day on my knees. But after Sunday's message, now I start the day on my face. And I think that's what God is calling us to, folks. Worship is not just this blase thing that we go about. Our Christianity has become an addition to our lives instead of the very center of it. It is not an extramural activity. What do you do on Sunday? Oh, I run marathons or I cycle the Argus. No, I go to church. It's, just not, it's not just one or the other. No, we are followers of Jesus. And we've lost what that means. I cannot follow Jesus and myself. I cannot be focused on my own comfort and follow Him. It's impossible. And Jesus is calling us back. So I want you to stand with me. As we turn our hearts to the Lord and ask Him to speak to us, to give us His perspective in this time and season. We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.